Before I read the gospel text, I want to tell you a story. A story comes from uh, a conversation I had several years ago with uh, a very successful commercial real estate developer in Atlanta, who I'm going to call Tom. Tom was a person of faith. He had done um, uh, quite well in his business. But he was telling me a story about how in the early 1970s, he was concerned. He was concerned as an individual in Atlanta. He was concerned as a Christian in Atlanta at the divisions, the racial divisions that were still very evident in the city at that time. And so he proposed a solution. His solution was to organize and to invite Billy Graham to come and to lead a crusade in Atlanta. Now that might sound like an odd thing if you're trying to work on uh, racial divisions to some of us, but what you may not know about Billy Graham is that he was one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the evangelists who would not segregate at his crusades. And in the 60s, when he started that, that was something that was very controversial, especially for someone like him from the South. Another thing about Billy Graham is that he insisted that the volunteer organizing committee in any city that brought him was multiracial. And so Tom saw this as an opportunity to bring together leaders in the black church and in the white church to work together and to uh, work for the common good of the city. This was his plan. Well, it took place. Uh, the, the faith leaders in different churches, including Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, Martin Luther King Sr., who was the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, came on board on the organizing committee. Uh, they invited, they held the crusade. <clears throat> and the story kind of takes a turn when after the crusade was finished, when it was over. And on the Sunday following the crusade, Tom was in worship with his wife uh, in his local church, and the pastor ad-libbed something, which we should never do uh, in a moment, and said, this was so exciting, it was so great. Uh, Tom, I want to invite you up here just to come and to share with us. And Tom said, I do not like public speaking. I'm not comfortable public speaking. I was very nervous going up there, especially with no warning. And the pastor said, well, you know, just tell us kind of like what, how this went. And he said, I kind of gave him the report of this is what happened. And these were the number of people who came to faith. And this is how the, uh, the churches worked together. And, and he said at the very end, the pastor looked at him and said, and Tom, tell, tell me about you. What did you come to believe and learn as part of this process? He said, I told him first thing that came into my mind. That because of this crusade, I had come to learn that the devil is real. He said that the pastor looked at him and was like, um. (laughs) He said his wife was on the front pew and he immediately knew that was not the right answer that he was supposed to have given. And the pastor repeated and was like, so again, what you learned, he said that the devil's real. Now, I was confused when he told me this story 30 years later. And I was like, well, like, if it went well, why is that what you learned? And he said, well, you have to understand that when Billy Graham first came for the first organizing meeting, we were there. And he, at the end of this kind of organizing logistical thing, said, now, uh, to all these pastors in Atlanta who are present, he said, I'm going to give you this prayer. It's a prayer of protection over the, over the crusade. And afterwards, uh, Tom said, well, I don't know why we did that. And he said, because the enemy is going to be working against this. And Tom said, I don't I don't believe in that. That's, I don't, I'm not comfortable with you doing this. And Tom's not alone in that. Research has shown, including the Barna Research Group that just a few years ago again published that a clear majority of American Christians, not Americans, American Christians do not believe 
that there is any such thing that we would refer to as the devil or the enemy or Satan. So Tom was representing a majority viewpoint, a majority viewpoint maybe of many of us in this room today. And Billy Graham said at the end of this crusade, you'll believe. So he said we had like organized everything down to a T. He said it was being held at this stadium, the Atlanta, old Atlanta Fulton County Stadium where the Braves used to play. We had about 30,000 people coming a night. We had organized it where we had the, 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 the t- sound system and the you know, jumbotron was all ready to go. I had bought personally a second backup sound system just in case there were a problem, although the stadium authorities told me I didn't need to do it. We had an AV person who we had employed to run it. We hired full-time a backup AV person just in case something went wrong with the first AV person. We had buses through the MARTA, uh, the public transit system there, that had agreed to go to all of these local churches and pick up people from the churches to bring them to the stadium for the crusade. And he said on the first night, the sound system went out as we were testing it. He said, not to worry, we have a backup. We plugged that in. We had tested it two days before. The backup sound system didn't work. We called the person who we had employed to run it, and he had the flu. We called the backup person who was in bed with the flu as well. And so the first night, we had a portable sound system that a volunteer from a local church ran, and most of the people there had a hard time hearing what was going on. On top of that, the buses that were picking everybody up for the only time in the history of the MARTA public transit system, the drivers went on strike unannounced the afternoon it was supposed to begin. And every single day, things were happening that could not be explained, except there was something that was opposing what it is we are doing. What did I learn? That I believe the devil's real. And again, many of us might sit and go, I don't, I, you know, I, I, it's just not where I am. And I understand that. But I want you to consider something today, which are the words of the 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire who wrote this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. With that in mind, I invite us to read our gospel text for this day, this first Sunday of Lent from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now this gospel text from the first Sunday of Lent uh, really gives us a lot of the design of what Lent is and how we think about it. For instance, Lent is 40 days. Well, where does that come from? It comes from this text that for 40 days, Jesus was in the wilderness. And while he was in the wilderness, he grappled, as you and I are called to do over Lent. He had to grapple with forces that were opposed to God's reign in the world and in his life. And in, in, in many ways, that's what you and I are called to do. We are called to reflect during these 40 days and to repent, to reflect on those parts in ourselves, to reflect on those parts in the world that are opposed to how God wants us to live and to seek to change, but to also realize as we become aware of those parts of just how much we need a savior, how much we need saving. And it prepares us to fully be able to stand before the cross in wonder and in gratitude. Now, there's some things I want us to throw out today. And one of the things I want us to throw out are like the kind of commercial ways that we would think about this idea of the devil. Not as this like scary, frightening kind of, you know, red person with a pitchfork and a tail and horns and a forked tongue. That, that's not what this is. It's not that we have to throw that out. Um, we also need to throw out the idea that anything we don't like in the world, and I know some people that are this way, you might know some people this way, that everything we don't like or as hard is, is of the devil. Sometimes God challenges us. So I get a little wary when I heard people kind of saying what, you know, this is the devil doing this or that or the enemy or anything else. But what I want us to do today is I want us to identify the work of the devil and to become clear on who he is based upon his name. Now in English, the word devil might not mean much to us. What it actually is, it's a pronunciation, the best kind of English version we can get of an ancient Greek word which is what this was originally written in. And the ancient Greek word for devil is diabolos. Now what we do is we just tried to, tried to make it sound English, diabolos, and somehow that evolved into devil. But the word diabolos has very particular meaning. It can be both a noun in Greek, as it is here, talking about a person, the devil, or it can be a verb. And the verb is an important word in Greek. The verb is not a bad word, it's not a negative word, it's not an evil word, but it's a particular word. And the verb form of diabolos means to split, to divide. And so the noun form of the verb to split, as seminary professor and former covenant pastor Jim Singleton would say, is that the devil is maybe best translated as the splitter, the divider, the bifurcator. And when we start understanding that is the work of the devil, some things start becoming clear. For instance, in this text, what is it that's really the temptations are about? Because the temptations aren't just about the devil trying to get Jesus to do bad things. Because some of these things don't seem that bad, right? Like especially the first one. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days and the devil's saying, turn this stone into bread. That, that on the surface of it doesn't seem like a really horrible thing to do. In fact, last week we referred to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 where there were 5,000 people in the wilderness, didn't have food to eat and Jesus provided for them miraculously and it was a good thing. So what's going on here? What we need to see when we understand of what the work of the splitter or the divider is, is that these temptations are seeking to not get Jesus to break a rule, but they are seeking to split and to divide the persons of the Trinity. It's the spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. And what the devil is trying to do is to divide the will of God the Father from the actions of the Son. 
And that's why every response Jesus gives is not about saying, is this a bad or a good thing? But it's talking about, it is written, here's what God's will is in this moment. That's what the work of the splitter or the divider is. We see the evidence of that evil in the world all around us today, right? We see that in our political system. As divided as we are, as split as we are, as polarized as we are, with people on the hard left and the hard right in self-righteousness saying, no, I am right, and I am uncompromising, and I will not see things from another point of view. And we are all, and if we don't solve this, we will continue to all reap the whirlwinds of what this will wreak, and the havoc it is going to wreak in our society and in our lives. We see that and the particular evil that it is in our own lives when we become divided in relationships, don't we? I mean, we can experience pain and hardship and difficulty, but there's a particular pain when we become split relationally. As if you become split in family dynamics, there's a pain and a loss in that that is acute. If you have long-term friendships where you become divided and split, those are particularly painful and difficult because that's the work of the enemy. I heard a, a haunting interview this week of the evil that we are seeing in the Ukraine right now, the absolute evil that we are seeing in this invasion of the Ukraine. Over now 1.5 million refugees who are fleeing. And I heard an interview this week on the radio with a young woman who's 20 years old who had just arrived in Berlin, Germany as so many different countries in Europe are seeking to house these refugees. And they asked her in an interview as she got off this train from the Ukraine, uh, are you grateful to be here? And she said, I am grateful to be here, but I have no peace, for I have been split in two. There is one piece of me that is here and grateful to be here and grateful for the welcome and grateful for the food but my family is back in the Ukraine and I don't know if they're okay and I have no ability to contact them and so there is one part of my heart that is still there. I have been split into two people so I am grateful to be here but I have no peace. The work of the splitter and the divider is always on the move. And it's on the move in your life as well, seeking to divide and split us and to split you, not just from each other, but ultimately the same work that's trying to happen with Jesus, to divide you from God's purpose for your life, to split you from the call that God has upon your life. I think this is one of the most important reasons that in the New Testament, and we don't talk about this enough in the church today, uh, that the Apostle Paul in the epistles talks about the importance of the unity of the body of Christ. Talking about this unity as a witness in a divided world. Because where the splitter is at work, we need to stand against that. And I believe that's one of the things that's been happening in Covenant, is we have been blessed by God in recent years. And when I talk about that, the unity of the church, that doesn't mean we agree on everything. Doesn't even mean we should agree on everything. Doesn't mean we all think the same thing. Doesn't mean we vote the same way. Doesn't mean we have the same opinions. Unity is not like-mindedness. But what unity is, it's a sense of staying connected and reconciled with each other in the midst of our life together. And so it's important that we do the spiritual work of loving each other, of being humble with each other, of listening to each other, of praying for each other, of forgiving each other, of reconciling with each other. Because there is a force at work that is opposed to what God is doing at Covenant Presbyterian Church right now. But the way that we're going to be attacked is not some out of the blue, 
public <clears throat> full frontal assault. That is not going to be, that might be what it looks like, but that won't be the origins of it. The origins are when we at core relationships start becoming divided one from another, unreconciled with each other. When the staff, and we talked about this at staff meeting this week, if we start not forgiving each other, of resenting each other, if the elders start doing that, if the deacons start doing that, if the volunteers start doing that, if our trustees start doing that, it's not that we're going to agree on everything, but if we become split and divided, that is, and most people won't notice it, but that's going to be the water that gets in the stone that eventually splits this thing. Work of the enemy is far more subtle than that. But it's the importance of why we need to do the work of staying unified. Because this journey never ceases. It never stops. I think one of the most haunting verses in Scripture is the last one we just read. It's not that Jesus was tempted three times and then the devil left for good. He says he goes and waits for a more opportune moment. And that is the splitter at work in your life and my life as well, that we always need to be on guard. So in the couple of minutes I have left, I want us to ask the question today is, how do we stand against this force in our lives, in our church? How do you and I stay aligned with living in the will of the Father? How is that something we live into? And there's some evidence here. First off, as I talked about before, it's important for us to stay reconciled in community. Not agreeing on everything, but listening to each other, being humble with each other, forgiving each other, asking for forgiveness, praying for one another. This work of community and doing life together is a critical way that we work against the splitter, against the divider. But you see here in this text, there's other tools that we need to be pulling from. First off, uh, one of the things we look at is, is, is Scripture is used. And I want to lift that up here. Jesus, every time in all three temptations, doesn't respond out of his own opinion or his own charm or his own intellect. The way he responds is standing on the word of God. The way he responds is by saying that this word that God has given us is authoritative in my life. So I need to know it. I need to be immersed in it. I need to be able to call upon it. I need to be able to live within it. And so that's another critically important thing is you and I knowing and being in the word, which is how Jesus responds each time. But there's something else that's going on here that we have to notice. Yes, we have to stay reconciled in community, and yes, we need to know the word, but those aren't just enough on their own, and that's a weird thing as a pastor to say. Because we can sell out being unified and become what in the book of Revelation says is lukewarm, if we're not careful. Or you can pull out a scripture verse, if we're just memorizing scripture, to justify pretty much anything you want. And throughout history, Christians have justified some really horrible stuff by going, well, I can pull out this verse of scripture. It means it's okay. There's something actually deeper that I want us to consider this day and this week and about how it is that we live united in the will of God and know God's plan and God's purpose for us. And we see this here in Jesus is that for the 40 days, he fasts. He doesn't eat. And this also ties into Lent. Why do we say, you know, what are you giving up for Lent? And I hope many of you have already found something you're giving up. That's not just like a little trick that we do. This is based upon this scripture passage that I need to deny myself. Some of you I know are fasting from social media. Some of you are fasting from certain foods. Some of you are fasting from alcohol. There's different things that people are fasting stuff. But we give something up in order to open ourselves to the presence of God. That's what fasting does. It, it's a way of seeking to deny ourselves sustenance in this world 
world in order to be open to being sustained and hearing from the eternal. Theologian Ole Halsby has this great quote about fasting. He says this, The purpose of fasting is to loosen to some degree the ties which bind us to the world of material things and our surroundings as a whole in order that we may concentrate all our spiritual powers upon the unseen and eternal things. It's a way of denying uh, the sustenance in this world and opening ourselves up. And if you have fasted or not, if that's not something you've ever done, what I want you to know is it's still fasting has affected your story. Because fasting was in the end what led me eight years ago to becoming the pastor of this church. It's hard to know God's will for your life, isn't it? There's lots of times where it's like, I don't know. It's really confusing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I want to be open to it, but how do I be open to it? And, and we were in Atlanta and, and had two children in school and uh, a school that they loved. And my wife had just finished her doctorate and she had just been offered a job in Atlanta working for a Christian foundation. And all of a sudden, this church in Austin, Texas and I were put in touch. It wasn't something that we were searching for. It wasn't something we were looking for, but there was something of the spirit within it. And so I did what you do when you're trying to discern what you're supposed to do. I, I learned about you all as a church. I learned about the history of this church. I talked to some of your for, former pastors. And you're like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, I talked to them, <laughs> right? Like to learn about you, to learn about why, what it was like. Uh, I looked at the finances of this church. We tried to learn about Austin. We tried to learn about the school systems here. We tried to learn about what we could afford and where our kids could go to school. And Beth and I, you know, as we, yes, maybe some of you would do this, we made our pro list and we made our con list and we talked it out. We talked it to exhaustion. And yet in the end, it was like, I still don't know, what, what, do, what do we do? And the search committee was saying, and if any of you, I'm sure some of the search committee members, it was not, it was not a straight, easy path. Because we didn't want to make a mistake. Because I didn't want to move my family a thousand miles away where I didn't know anybody and to leave my parents in Atlanta to six months later go, well, that was a mistake. I love my children too much to just do that. And the worst thing for a church is for four or five months in for you all to go, well, this was a mistake. And that happens. So how do you know? It became like a sandstorm. We were just talking in circles. We were praying. We were trying to figure it out. And so in the end, Beth and I invited the search committee to fast with us. And to just hold out all of us before the Lord, saying as we deny ourselves in this world, Lord, what do you, we want to be aligned with your will. What should it be? And at the end of that period of fasting, Beth and I looked at each other and said, God's calling us to go to Austin. And the search committee said, we believe God's calling you to come here. And I can tell you through the ups and downs, and we've had some ups and we've had some downs. Eight years later, I'm so grateful to be a part of this community. But it was fasting it was seeking. It was desiring to say, Lord, what do you alone want that in the end was how we could discern? And so this week, I'm going to invite you to continue in that process. Some of you have already given something up for Lent. You're like, I know what I've given up. I know what I'm fasting from. I don't want to dissuade you from that. Do what you need to do. Maybe you'll do this along with us. Some of you maybe are going, haven't even thought about this. Well, this is a way you can begin a process of fasting because this week on Tuesday, I am going to fast in the ways that we see here in the scriptures. Now, I want to say a couple of things first off, because we have to sign forms in this day and age. If medically you shouldn't do it, don't do it. Don't do it. 
I want to be clear, don't do it. Please don't do it. And if you can't do it on Tuesday, do it another day. There's nothing magic about Tuesday. It just happens to work for my calendar the best. And I'm the one starting this, so I got to pick. <laughs> but we're going to bring up on the screen here how this is going to work. And I invite all of you to consider doing it with me. Fasting, this is going to be the shortest fast that I know of. We're just going to do it during the daylight hours. You can have breakfast if you want to before uh, the sun comes up. You can have dinner that night. We're going to fast during the daylight hours. So uh, um, what I'm going to do during those hours is just have water is what I'm going to drink. Okay. Uh, second, use the time you would normally eat to pray. Don't just like it fill up your calendar, but kind of take that time and when you'd be preparing food or eating of just uh, saying, I'm going to set that time aside to pray. Maybe you'll stay in your room and pray. Maybe you'll pray through the scriptures. Maybe you'll sing. Maybe you'll do what I do and go for a prayer walk. But use that time constructively to turn towards the Lord. Third, throughout the day, hold out specific areas of need before God. What are the things that you are wrestling with? What are the things in your life where you live, work, and play that you're going, Lord, what is your will? I'm confused right now. I'm not certain how you want me to act. I'm not certain what I'm supposed to say. I'm not certain how this is supposed to work. To hold that out before God. And last, ask God to allow you to discern God's will. You see, when you pray during fasting, it's not Santa Claus prayers. It's not like, I need this, and the nation needs this, and my world needs this, and the Ukrainians need this, and my kids need this, and my neighbor needs this. So if I just don't eat, will you give it to us? It's about sitting there and going, holding this out and going, Lord, help me to hear. Help me to listen. What is thy will to be done? Pray the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And see what God over time sits upon your heart. Because here's what I want you to know. There is a force at work seeking to divide you from God's plan and purpose for your life. And it never goes away. The splitter is always at work. And the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. But we have been given the resources to learn, to sit within, to dwell within, to hear of the call and purpose of God on our life. And imagine the possibilities this week. If, this, if the thousands of people in the covenant orbit took this seriously and walked back in here to let, next week going, I have clarity of what God's plan and purpose for me. Get out of the way. You're going to see things move. Imagine how we in this world might be able to be changed. May this happen. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, lead us, guide us as we continue on this journey, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our guide, our teacher, our example, our friend, our brother, our savior. Amen.